we've got a special guest for you today. She's known as the Eye Doctor, and her name is Dr. Mariam Zamani. How are you? I'm really well, thanks. How are you? Yeah, good. Apart from technology problems, but hey-ho. Dr. Mariam Zamani is a leading oculoplastic surgeon and aesthetic doctor based in London with international clients. She's got extensive experience in oculoplastic surgery, skin rejuvenation, which becomes a thing for us as we approach our 40s and onwards. I won't give you a clue, folks, to my age, but I'm a keen observer, let's put it that way. So she's been over 15 years in practice as one of the UK's most well-respected surgeons who prides herself in gaining understanding for her clients in terms of what they want from their regime. Dr. Mariam, I'll call you Mariam. I was particularly interested because I've always had problems with my eyes. And I've always been in and out of with eye surgeons because I had something called Duane syndrome, which is a defect where if I don't turn my head completely to one direction, the eye, my left eye doesn't move accordingly. And I've had blepharitis and stuff. But this podcast is not about my eye problems. First and foremost, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your story in terms of who really is Mariam Zamani behind the eye doctor label and profession that you have? So I have lots of different dimensions to myself, as I'm sure you do too. So I'm an oculoplastic surgeon, which means I do concentrate on operating around the eyes, but I am also an aesthetic doctor, which means I do lots of really fun injectable and non-invasive treatments with lasers and other energy-based modalities. I am a wife to my husband. I have two children who are 12 and 14, and I have lots of different kinds of hobbies, but I am also a sister to my sister and my two brothers. That's sort of me in a nutshell. I consider myself Iranian before I say American, despite the fact that I was born in New York City. And I spent all of my adult life until I was about 30 in the U.S., at which point I moved to the UK around, I think it was 2006, I, I moved to the UK, got married to my husband, and London has been home for a long time now. Before we go into your career journey, you're one of the 8 million Iranians that have emigrated from Iran, the brain drain, as we call it. Let's explore a little bit further that, story of you emigrating multiple countries how easy was it and what impact did it have and is london now your home my parents are both doctors and they went to school in iran they had come to the states to do their training my mother is a pathologist and my father is an orthopedic surgeon and the idea was that they were going to do their residencies where which was at Hopkins, and then they were going to go back to Iran. And my dad really had a dream to be an academic at the university where he was. And that was the idea. They always say, we arrived, they gave us green cards, they gave us passports. We didn't want anything because we thought, oh, we're just here for a couple of years and then we'll head back. Fast forward a few years, they had three children and my youngest brother wasn't born yet. The revolution happened. And they decided that it was better to stay in the U.S. than it would be to be in Iran. They had quite a turbulent year that year because my father said, we might not be able to see our family in a really long time. Maybe we should go back. 
They had a lot of problems getting back into America because they had been on student visas. Jimmy Carter had taken away these student visas at that time. And my parents were in transit with us and they went to Germany. Germany said no, they went to Mexico. They were told they're not going to be able to come back in the U.S. We went and stayed with some family in California while Hopkins was very kind and helped sponsor and get my parents back into the U.S. So it was pretty trying times for them. I was very young. I don't recall. I remember moving to California and saying, this land is my land, this land is your land. But I don't remember much else except for the fact that my brother was like, I don't know, I think he was like nine months old. And then we stayed in the U.S. thereafter. And I grew up outside of Baltimore, which is where Hopkins is. Went to a lovely all-girls school and then I went to college in D.C. And it was really in D.C. that I felt that I found my people. I don't know how to explain it in any other way. I had a great childhood, so I'm not at all saying there was no negative connotation my parents were highly educated. They had a lot of doctor friends, that also Iranian, similar stories. And I was lived in my own little bubble. I would actually go back to Iran quite frequently. Being Iranian was really important growing up. We ate Persian food every day. I had, my parents had somebody Iranian in the house who cooked for us. We spoke, we spoke Farsi. My mother started classes so we all can read and write to third grade level, but we can still read and write. And I would go back to Iran and have always been fiercely proud of where I come from. But when I went to Georgetown, which was a very international school, I really felt that was, I found my little place. I was no longer a little bit different. I was just similar to so many other people. Moving to London was super easy in the sense that I love London. It's a melting pot similar to DC in, in many ways. There are people from everywhere. I feel this is home. I don't feel like an outsider at all. I have friends from all over the world. I have all walks of life. I've created a very niche and happy practice in you know what I'm doing professionally. I have kids with English accents, which I absolutely love. And I still try, I haven't been back to Iran in a couple of years now, but I try to go back and forth. My family still goes back and forth. My father and mother are actually going in two weeks time. I'm a little nervous for them, but they're still going back in, in two weeks' time. It's so insightful what you just said and the way you relayed that story. I think it would relate to so many people in terms of the way people have emigrated. And there has been a price to pay for a lot of people, whether it's families being separated, the fact that some haven't been able over the years because of the Iran-Iraq war and the regime and stuff to be able to go back or go to third countries. Oh, let's meet up in Turkey or... Armenia, but can't go back home. And it's interesting now London is your home. And I agree with you. I think it's the capital of the world in a lot of these senses. But one of the questions I had in my head. So when you were a kid, did you tell your mama and your baba, I want to be an eye doctor? Because us Iranians were famous for having great eyes. What's that song by Andy? Sorry, folks. But yeah, I'd love to hear more about that. No, that was not the natural trajectory. My mother and father are both doctors, as I mentioned, and I'm the eldest of four. And I have quite a number of doctors in my family. And it was just assumed that I would be the next doctor. People were calling me fun doctor when I was in high school. I actually hated medical school. I almost went to New York. I had a job offer actually at Goldman and Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan. And I was about to take that job. And my father talked me out of it. 
very persuasively. And then really started my second year. I didn't like my first two years of medical school, but I had an internship that was pretty amazing at Johns Hopkins where I worked with, I worked in the department and I watched the head of plastic surgery who, who had very kindly given me this internship. We saw him do some pretty miraculous things with surgery. There was a guy who had this big squamous cell carcinoma, which is a type of skin cancer out of his head that had gone into his cranium, into his skull. And they had removed that. They had created mesh, really recreate a whole forehead. Head. He was there from six in the morning when I started and he was operating until 2.30 in the morning for this gentleman. And the guy, I was actually, I saw him, I was there long enough to see him recover over the next couple of weeks. And it was really extraordinary. And then fast forward into my second and third year of medical school, I met some people who were involved with something called Operation Smile, which is a group of plastic surgeons and doctors who go to different countries and help to fix cleft lip and palates. And I went to Thailand. I raised some money for them in DC and I raised the most amount of money for them. So they took me on a trip to Thailand and it was incredible what they were doing. So they were not only doing surgery on kids who had walked for miles and miles from towns and areas far and long away from where we were. And we, I helped with the screening and I would help holding instruments in an operating room. I didn't have any real actual grit in what I was doing, but I saw how incredibly rewarding it was. And I came back and I decided I, I love surgery. I love the idea of having an issue and then going in and making it better. And when I was deciding what to do, my, I asked my dad, I said, dad, how did you decide to be an orthopedic surgeon? He said, I was debating between neurosurgery and orthopedics. And for me, when I was doing neurosurgery, having someone doing a rub and they would grimace, that was a positive outcome. He said, but when I did orthopedics, I did a hip replacement. And the next day or a few days later, a week later, they were walking and they'd be, hey, Dr. Zamani, I can walk again. And he said, that feeling was really amazing. And I just like that happiness that I was able to give to people. And for me, I decided I really wanted to be an expert in one area, not in a lot. And I always knew I wanted to do the plastics portion, which is the cosmetic and aesthetic portion of it. And there are different ways to go about doing that. It was either to do general surgery, either to go through ENT, which is ear, nose, throat, or through eyes. And at the time, there were only a handful of programs that you could do straight plastics. But I really didn't want to do anything in the body that didn't interest me. Head and neck was really depressing. There was a lot of head and neck cancers, and that really made me sad. And I just, I couldn't emotionally deal with it. And I loved ophthalmology because it was lovely. It was easy it, in terms of patient populations. They would come in, they'd have an issue. You could do something in a short period of time and create a really nice big outcome where they were happy. And it's so neat and precise. And I just love that. So I found my niche. I think if I were in the States, I'd be doing something different. But when I moved to the UK, I'm board certified in America, but I had to get my license transferred over. And at the time they were doing all these studies here. I did two fellowships here. I did some studies with using hyaluronic acid in patients who had undergone multiple surgeries for traumas or skin cancers or different kinds of issues. And they just didn't want to have another surgery, but they wanted to look a little bit better. And so I would go in with these injectable fillers and I was like, wow, there's so much you can do other than surgery. So that led me down the route of doing all the non-surgical stuff. And I realized I needed to know more about skin. I did fellowship in dermatology here. 
And when I created my practice, I decided I wanted to do everything from the inside out. I wanted to do everything superficial, deep, as well as in between. So that's why my practice is quite niche. I do injectables. I do laser and energy-based technologies. I do skincare, and it's really the complete package. So I was really fortunate in doing that. But yeah, it wasn't an obvious choice. Am I happy I did it? Yes, I love what I do. I I love that I have combined my surgical aspect with the non-surgical and that I have the skincare range and it's fun and interesting. And I get to meet a lot of interesting people at the same time too. And it strikes me as your passion. Yes. And that's important because it's where you add in diff- making a difference. And a lot of people struggle with that. And they say you can tell how you can tell the person's age by looking at their hands or sometimes around the eyes because, yeah, because that, that, that goes as we grow older. In, I'm always fascinated about medicine and advances and anti-aging, etc. Do you utilize stem cells or blood plasma yes. in terms of so, rejuvenation? Yes. So I do platelet-rich plasma, which is when you take your blood and you spin it and you get platelet-rich plasma and you re-inject it back in either deeply or you can use it superficially in conjunction with lasers or microneedling, for instance. Yes, I absolutely do that. My skincare line also has lots of stem cells. We use placenta in, in my skincare range as well. I'm a big proponent of anything that's going to soup up collagen in the last production and is natural. Yeah, because I've seen a quite a big move that the world of medicine and skincare and even pharmaceutical stuff, where it's combining in terms of an all solution where people can go for their well-being, can get rejuvenated, can take off years in terms of the outward look of someone because... Uh, another thing they say as well is that as you're aging, how you look is a sign of how you are inside. <laughs> the goal that I do for my patients is really for people to look their best at every age. So you could be younger, older, anything in between. It's not about looking different. It's about being the best version of yourself at all ages. Well, you obviously do well with the skincare products that you have because you're a walking advertisement yeah. for it. So moving on to your career, because obviously your parents must have been delighted, gone into that doctor field. Iranians, if you're not a doctor, lawyer, an engineer, then what the hell are you? Does entrepreneurism come naturally to you in terms of being an entrepreneur? We know your passion and love for what you do, but talk us through that journey. I'm an accidental entrepreneur. I really created MZ Skin for myself initially for pigmentation, so... It wasn't not something that I had a business plan and I decided to go out and start doing. I really suffered from pigmentation, loved the ritual aspect of skincare, had always loved it. So from when I was in college, I would go work out, come home, have a nice shower, and then put my lovely creams on my face and go to bed. And then as I got older and went to medical school, I realized that actually some of these didn't necessarily have benefits. So I started using some doctor brands. They were all made by men. They felt very masculine. They felt very regimented. I lost that ritual, lovely aspect that I think is really important in terms of self-care and self-love. And I became the non-compliant patient. So I basically went back to the brands that I liked and I started formulating with my external chemist to make a skincare line. 
And I was very lucky. I met the junior buyer at Harrods and she loved my products. And she said, there's only one other doctor brand that we have that's female led. I'd love to launch you in February. That was in early, in September. That was in early January and early January, late beyond January. And I didn't even have a brand. And I was like, oh my God, I have so much to do. And so it all went from there. I had no business plan. My husband said, how many are you going to sell? I was like, I have no idea. He's like, where else are you going to sell? I have no idea. He's like, how many are Harrods are going to sell? I was like, I have no idea. How much is it going to cost? I have an idea, but I don't really have an idea. I don't, I only know what I know. And I don't, there's probably a lot that I don't know. It was quite, it happened quite quickly. I think sometimes that's a good thing. So I didn't have too much time to think about it. And therefore it didn't scare me. Perhaps if I had known all the things that I know now, I might not have done it. But because it's so ingrained in me, it's not, I don't feel like it's a struggle. Obviously, I have obstacles. There's ups and downs and we all hit difficulties, but it's not something that has been a drain. It's been a pleasure. Which is beautiful. So what does success mean to you and has it changed as you've grown older and wiser? (laughs) I don't know what success is. For me, success is being able to have freedom to do what you want to do the way you want to do it. And in that sense, I am very lucky. I run my practice the way that I want to run it. I have technologies that I want to have. I have teams that I love. I love the people who work in my office clinically. I love the people who work in my office for MZ Skin. I love the bond that I've created and the atmosphere I've created. I'm particularly proud that I guess part of things that are success is that I'm a, I'm doing it with a young daughter who can look up and say, my mommy can do that. I can too. I like that. I have a really wonderful marriage where my husband allows me to shine and is proud of that. So my son can see what it means to have an equal partnership in that sense. I just feel very fortunate that Maybe I've manifested it, I don't know, but I'm leading the life that I want to lead the way that I want to lead it. So to me, that's success. Yeah, it can manifest over this direction as well. What do you think are the qualities to make it to the top? You've got to love what you do and you've got to do it over and over again. That practice makes perfect is not a cliche, it's true. If you want to be good at something, you have to do it a million times and you have to watch other people doing it and you have to get advice whenever you feel that you don't know what you're doing and you have to learn from the people around you and surround yourself by strong people and people to know what's good and what's bad and to be able to differentiate between the two. Good points, because especially the people around us, there's the type of people that just suck the life out of you and they just bring you down. And just them being them bring you down, what I describe as toxic people. And then there are others that just lift you up, that are inspiring, that are your real supporters. And we need to surround ourselves with those people because otherwise our life can be really miserable with individuals that are just sucking the life out of everything. Because remember, misery loves company. And it's something that we have to be mindful of. And I've had to be mindful of and make some hard choices along the way because 
One of the key aspects to, I would say, to have a successful life is a meaningful life. And that requires a meaningful career, a meaningful relationship, and to try to make a difference. And I think sometimes people struggle with that because they associate with the Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos's of the world. And it seems like you've got a meaningful career, a meaningful relationship, and you're trying to make a difference in what you do, which is awesome. So as we're coming to the finishing straight of the podcast, I wanted to ask, when it comes to life and lessons, what's the hardest lessons that you've had to experience in your life? I think probably for me is that I never thought of glass ceilings. My father is very progressive. My, my whole family is progressive. Everyone's highly educated. There's no difference between being a man and a woman. And interestingly, as I, I never noticed it when I was young because I was probably under the roof of my parents. And then I was with my husband, who's similar mentality to my parent, my family. But I found that there are glass ceilings and it still needs to change and that a woman voice is not always as heard as a man's or taken as seriously. And what might come across as being aggressive for a woman is just being determined for a man. And I realized that the only way to change that is to be the change you want to see and to support the people around you and to do it with dignity and mutual respect to educate the next generation. So I think for me, that's, I was a little bit shocked that still is so widely prevalent. I guess perhaps earlier on, I was lower in my career. So I just thought of it as a hierarchy thing. Whereas as I got older in my forties, I realized that actually no sexism is still very much prevalent, not just in Iran, but around everywhere in the world. I think it's, Continuing even in the Western world, as you said, the capital of the world, London, is still very much alive here amongst the educated as well. So I think that's probably one of the things that's surprised me the most. Interesting, because 5% of CEOs from the major indexes of companies in Canada, UK and USA come from an ethnic minority background, only 5% of CEOs. And then I feel like in Europe, especially, although Iranians have been successful in the United States, sometimes in Europe, they've had some ceilings and barriers because of the fact there has been some negative, real negative stereotypes and labeling about Iranians. And they haven't quite fit into certain demographics. And I feel like at times it's been a hard climb, but because of people like you that have broken through and given that role model example, it's given that inspiration. You know what? Maybe I can do it. Maybe I can excel and reach to the top. And I'm seeing more of it now, especially in the world of tech, for example. Amazing. I hope yeah. that only that's what, we, that's what progress is, right? My final question when it comes to the podcast, what are you most proud about in your life? hard one. That's a hard question. I guess I'm proud that I've been able to do what I wanted to do. It's hard because usually the way that I am is that what I try and say to myself is that I should always congratulate and celebrate 
the wins and not just go on to the next thing. Going back and saying what you're the most proud of, I'm proud of all of it. I'm proud to be able to have and do what I want to do. But I think for me, I think part of the thing that I'm most proud about And it sounds so silly because it's not anything to do with what I've achieved or anything, but there were two things that made me very happy that stand out in my career. And one is the day that I launched at Harrods and it was seven o'clock in the morning and I went in heels, which was crazy because I had to walk like underneath Harrods, which is about a two mile walk. It felt like a two mile walk from the staff entrance to where my products were going and carrying all these heavy creams in my hands. And for me, that was proud. But when my daughter came in with my son and my husband to come and take a look at it, my daughter kept going up to him and that's my mom, that's my mom, which I thought was just like the sweetest thing ever. And what really made me proud was when the teacher called me in first school talk and parent teacher conference, not a school talk, And she said, I just wanted to let you know, we asked all the kids, my daughter was super young. She was like eight years old, said, we asked everybody what they want to do when they grow up. And Lily, my daughter said that she wanted to take NZ skin around the world. And I don't know, that just made me so, oh my God, I didn't even know she knew what I did. (laughs) She's so little, but I don't know. Those are two of my proud moments. Yeah, it's wonderful because I don't know about you, when I was younger, it was all about me. And then as I've had my kids, it's all about them. And Iranians at times, everyone loves their kids in different nationalities. But there has been a point where Iranian families, sometimes they go so much into the love thing where they're trying to cuddle their kids to the nth degree where it's almost to the point where they want to soft cushion everything throughout their whole life because there is this overwhelming sense of family and love which this is what the regime has played upon, actually, in terms of psychological warfare on that aspect of family being a cornerstone of Iranian culture. Really interesting. Do you have any dreams about one day taking your work back to Iran? I would love to have my products sold in Iran. It would would be incredibly proud to be there. Yeah, because it's a booming industry, isn't it? In plastic surgery in Iran and looking after the skin and everything else. Everywhere, everywhere. Not just <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Great. What's your best contacts in terms of people listening to you, want to reach out to you? Where can they find you? Okay, so on Instagram, Dr. Mariam Zamani, MZ Skin. But and Dr. Mariam is the one that I look at. And yes, that were my website, Dr. Mariam Zamani, MZ Skin. Those are both the ways to get in touch with me. And it's been a pleasure speaking with you. This has been a successful Iranians and we've had the pleasure of Dr. Maryam Zamani. Thank you. Thank you.